This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Welcome to Primal Screen, a triple R film criticism show and podcast. I am your often vexed but doubly vaxxed host, Paul Anthony Nelson, continuing to broadcast from home and joining me from their abodes for their Primal Screen debuts. We say this is a film criticism show. Well, why not bring in uh, two of the Brains Trust at the from the Australian Film Critics Association? Uh, I have critic, writer and AFCA chairman, Adam Ross. Hi, Paul. Love it to have you. And fellow critic and writer Nadine Whitney. Hello, everyone. Hello. Lovely to have you as well. Thank you. With Melbourne cinemas still closed due to lockdown episode five, The Empire Strikes Back, <laughs> and a certain large sporting event happening in Tokyo right now, which, to be fair, we're probably completely ambivalent towards, we thought we'd program a trio, a gold, silver and a bronze, if you will, of classic films which are somehow related to the Olympic Games. First, we run in very English shoes, training for 1924, the 1924 Paris Games as we look at Hugh Hudson's 1981 Best Picture Oscar winner, Chariots of Fire. Then we'll deal with the fallout of the terror attack at the 1972 Olympics with Eric Banner, in Steven Spielberg's 2005 thriller Munich. And finally, we'll train to wrestle in the, the 1988 Seoul Olympics while wrestling with the unwelcome attention of a bizarre homicidal billionaire played by Steve Carell in Bennett Miller's 2004 drama Foxcatcher. Also, <laughs> also, as you listen to us chatting about these films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. What were you saying there, Nadine? Uh, That was 2014, I think, not 2004. Did I say? Oh, I've got 2014 written here. It must have just been a... uh, Well, double-vaxxed. A minor minor dyslexic moment, maybe. (laughs) Um, So... uh, in lieu, because we've been in lockdown and, and not much going on in the movie world at the moment, in, in lieu of a news segment, um, I think we might just run to the couch for our first film of the week. Winner gets the gold. I believe that God made me for a purpose, for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Sorry, Carl, that was the highest quality clip I could find. Uh, Chariots of Fire from 1981 was the first feature film directed by Hugh Hudson. In this class-obsessed and religiously divided UK of the early 1920s, two determined young runners train for the 1924 Paris Olympics. Eric Little, played by Ian Charlson, a devout Christian born to Scottish missionaries in China, sees running as part of his worship of God's glory and refuses to train or compete on the Sabbath. Harold Abrahams, played by Ben Cross, overcomes anti-Semitism and class bias, 
but neglects his beloved sweetheart in his single-minded quest. Nadine, did this inspire you to greater heights or have you running a mile away? Well, I did see it when I was very young um, and I thought it was quite incredible then, but I was very young. I was 11. And so I thought, oh, wow, you know, these people doing amazing things and there's subtext and the subtext is something that now I'm looking at. It could have been explored a bit better. Um, I've found myself thinking, well, this is just one of those prestige British films, which promises a lot and doesn't deliver. But the Academy obviously liked it more than Raiders of the Lost Ark um, and awarded it Best Picture. So, you know, who am I to say? It's very odd. I mean, not a lot of 11-year-old Oscar voters um, no, at the time. Yeah. So I'm not sure what grown-ass adults were thinking. Um, Adam, where did you land on 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 chariots of fire did you look, did you dig it a bit more look i must be a sap because i kind of dug this uh i was like sitting there grinning i'm like oh this is you know this is rousing um i think too as well i was saying to you before that i don't know if i'd actually even seen this and maybe i just seen it parodied you know like with these guys with these o faces you know like screaming <laughs> for you know, like i mean and the music is iconic um so does it seinfeld is it is a seinfeld <laughs> episode which has a key i think that there's a bunch of, yeah i was I, i've done that before like you know, I mean, I remember my mum saying that The Exorcist was the scariest film ever. And by the time I finally got to it, I'd seen so many parodies of the spinning head. I kind of giggled. And my mum's like, oh, what's wrong with you? You know, like, but I'd probably seen like scary movie before I'd seen The Exorcist, which, you know, uh, betrays my age. But I I kind of dug this. I think that I had passively seen this. I think that there was a DVD re-release of every Best Pitch winner. And I was systematically going through them at the video store. So when I say passively seen it, I was stacking the shelves at Blockbuster listening to the soundtrack. And I'd look up now and then and, and watch bits of it. But I think that my first viewing on Disney Plus the other day was my first official sit down of Chariots of Fire. And I dug it. Um, I think that both the boys are really good, like Ben Cross and Ian Charleston. And I didn't realise also that when I was looking up research for this, I didn't realise that he died so young at 40, um, you know, oh, from Ian Charleston, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was like, holy shit. I was like, you know, this, um, I what a waste. But I mean, I think he's really commanding in here. I, the thing I do like about this movie is that they're not, and look, some people might think it, it gives the movie no dramatic engine, but I like that they're not actually pitted against each other. Like they're not mean spirited they're both in their own personal internal battles to prove themselves like one to god and you know like and i just yeah i like that element that they didn't kind of manufacture the drama where they're really nasty to each other like i tonya that we were talking about <laughs> before. i don't know if that would play in chariots of fire <laughs> yeah it's funny isn't it i i do i do agree with that i i because I, I i don't particularly like it when they manufacture these con, con uh, conflicts out of a real life situation where there perhaps was mm. none. Um, the actors were one of the things I liked about this film. Um, I, I feel like for a film that prizes the journey over the result, I sort of feel like chariots of fire fits fairly meanders through its own. Um, and it's one of those things that getting to the end of the film, I wasn't sure as much what the wiser and what it was about than when it started. I, it purport, purports to be about worship, friendship and decency and making these moral choices. Mm. It, it, but for me personally, I, it didn't make a particularly moving statement about any of those things. 
Harold's battle against anti-Semitism didn't seem that much of a struggle within the framework of the film. There's a few people making some snide comments, but including than, Richard Griffiths, yes, and cameo there, Uncle Monty, um, uh, Uncle Monty, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like like the cast making the comments were incredible. You've got John Gilgood, Gilgood, yeah, <laughs> and Richard Griffiths and so forth. Um, but yeah, and Eric's final choice didn't seem like nothing seemed particular. It was just it just seemed to amble from one sort of moment to the next. Um, so much so, it sort of felt fitting that Vangelis's stirring theme bookended the film because it didn't seem that uh, that much in between could really support it. Um, it, it. It just felt very thoroughly, determinedly beige and mm. proper and, and post-Victorian pre-World War II Englishness. I having said that though, I did. I'm like I like the actors and I like the characters. Like I did actually, I, I did find it mildly diverting, and it was sort of interested in what they were sort of, you know, like. But it just never really hooked. It's just kind of like oh, these are pleasant people in a very stuffy situation. It, it just, thank goodness for it. Just never really like I. Th- yeah, I thought the actors were perfectly fine. The film is lovingly mounted and and diverting enough. It just never really took flight to anything that left an impact on me. Like even the races, I, I really expected to get caught up in that and just didn't. What about the rousing training sequence where the guy's on his shoulders cycling his legs in the air like, <laughs> like, like and they're doing all the bending and snapping? I was kind of like, because I was watching it through the prism of sports back then. I'm like, what did they know back then? Like what were they doing? And they were doing some And pretty- as a personal trainer as well, they're which all, you also yeah, do. Yeah, like moonlighting is <laughs> that they, they were doing some pretty funky moves in uh, you know, in the 1920s in their running training, you know. They weren't doing leg presses, you know, like I mean, they were just you run through the Scottish Highlands, that's all you do. Yeah, well, they're yeah. they're right there. That's your gym, just yeah. <laughs> But speaking of trainers, um, the great Ian Home, yeah, uh, he's really good. Is wonderful in this as an Italian dash Arab, which is the which is the term they use. Um, and he's Abraham's sorry Abraham's trainer, and mm. um, that that speech that um, is given by Ben Cross to John Gilgood about, you know, I have a professional trainer and, by the way, he's also not as English as as you would like is one of the more powerful moments in the film, I think. And ageing up Ian Holm there to look like he's already in his late 50s is, is quite extraordinary. So. I, I was going to, yeah, like that was, I, I totally agree. I think Ian Holmes' brief appearance, like brief role kind of gives this film what little spark it has. He's mm. always, whenever he comes on screen, he's a delight. Absolutely. And, and gives that, like you said, gives that sort of um, some stirring moments. Um, and it's hard to look at him and not see a hobbit. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> he's so perfect. I, I was thinking more alien. I was thinking. Oh, you think more like, Ash, the android. <laughs> yeah. uh, I always feel like, for me, I when it comes to alien androids, I'm always a Henriksen guy. Yeah, it's like Bishop is my guy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as I do the knife trick of my hand. Not Fassbender. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> not uh, not Lawrence of Prometheus. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Maybe. I, I I just I, I wish this film had had more of a, a hit on me. Like for instance, like I really like I thought Nigel Havers was very likable and charismatic, but again, just seemed to kind of drift in and out of the film. There's this really odd sort of. Uh, well, the same um, with Nicholas Farrell. 
um, who, yeah, yeah, who's who's I guess the fourth, you know, of, of the, the the four. He was he's the fourth, but he's also quite central because his friendship with um, Harold is the first friendship you see. But he he kind of drifts out as well, um, and yeah, I I feel that it's it was trying to say a lot about the old school tie about king god and country and which order you should put these things in but doesn't quite get there with it all um mm. i wish i was as moved by this as adam was <laughs> i think i don't know i think you know but i think exactly what you're saying about this book ending of the score by evangelist like the way that that works i've always thought like sometimes i'm leaving a movie especially a comedy right and the comedy can be deadly average but then it's got this laugh reel and everyone's walking out there like that was so funny and i'm like no it wasn't it just had a few laughs like in the last 30 seconds and you're being tricked and so maybe me goofily smiling at these guys running on the beach maybe i was tricked <laughs> By Vandalist's score, you know, and like these slow motion faces. I was like, yes. yeah, yeah, boys, go for it. You know, like, I don't know. I've been hoodwinked. <laughs> there was something. the Academy. Yeah. Yeah. Apparently now, I mean, can we interrogate this for a moment? I mean, the nominees that year, I mean, we've got Raiders of the Lost Ark, which, I mean, aside from. No one remembered. No. <laughs> yeah, a film film yeah. that has been lost to the yeah. <laughs> just cast aside by time. Mm. <laughs> yeah, what did the guy that make that go on to do? I don't. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Never, never I mean, I, there may be a more like um, he may have made some obscure film we're talking about today. <laughs> um, like it's very strange. Like like that is a film. Like besides, you know, general eighties geekery, it is one of the most perfectly constructed adventure films ever ever produced um you know on golden pond uh which, which again won all classic. the acting oscars that year yeah. um and uh i'm i'm just trying to uh, call up the rest as we speak um but you know like it seems it seems like a, a bit of a and i don't want to put this in that category so much but it's a bit of a green book sort of but it's not nearly as sentimental like it's not it doesn't have the sense it doesn't even have that sort of sentimental punch of something like a green book or a or a, or a crash it's very it's just this weirdly it's more like a driving miss daisy but even mm. then not quite a sentiment like it's one of those odd choices that the 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 academy seen uh, uh, warren Beatty's reds was another one which is Ooh. also a, a great film yeah. and one best director that year louis miles atlantic city it's it's a little baffling. Did this um, permeate popular culture? Was everyone running around the block? Like, you know, was there? Maybe. <laughs> well, the soundtrack well, definitely did. Like, the soundtrack is probably more famous than the film. From itself, yeah. 100%, yeah. which is what I'm thinking. Did, like, should was, should this Oscar have gone? for the soundtrack. Yeah. Should it have gone to Vangelis and not David Putnam? Like, Well, it did. <laughs> <laughs> like but best pick yeah he won the score but i mean best picture as well like i, I feel like <laughs> i feel like the the odd the score is and again it's bookends the movie and like you're saying adam there is that thing i mean it was kind of i oh, was it roger corman or francis coppler or someone once said something to the effect of you you have a killer ending a killer opening and three good scenes in between and, and you know a little sex a little violence and you've got a film that you know is going to do well, and it's mm-hmm. sort of that thing. If you if you grab audiences at the start and leave them smiling at the end, 
Yeah. Angelus the score does exactly that. So and it's funny that it, like, you know, and I mean, and they're they're bookended kind of like effectively by the same scene. And at first, my interpretation of it was it was kind of goofy. Like I was laughing at their faces and I thought, oh, this is a bit, you know, like this is funny. And then mm. by the end, and I because and the like the words of the characters running through my head when he's like, When I run, I feel God's pleasure, you know. And I was like, Oh, he's, <laughs> he's I'm like, he's really into this, you know. I don't know. Like, oh, this serious. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, he's he's actually being transported, you know, like I was into it. God, yeah, it's really into God too. Um, the real uh, Eric Little ended up dying as a missionary in China. In China, yeah, yeah. So. It's uh, yeah. I don't know. I guess religious devotion and twee romances don't make an interesting story for Even me. Even if I it is with Alice Krieg, I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's great. I I I tend to like her more in villainous roles. I find, you know, or give me. Queen. Star Trek First Contact or uh, yeah. Sleepwalkers any day of the week. <laughs> so um, if you want to uh, uh, have your own opinion on the, uh, nine, the the baffling 1981 Best Picture Oscar winner, Chariots of Fire, it's now streaming on Disney Plus and is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple Movies, Google Play and Amazon Video. You're listening to Primal Screen. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Nadine, Nadine Whitney, Adam Ross, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Which brings us to our second film of the evening. We're Jews, Adam. Jews don't do wrong because our enemies do wrong. We can't afford to be that decent anymore. I don't know that we ever were that decent. Suffering... Thousands of years of hatred doesn't make you decent. But we're supposed to be righteous. That's a beautiful thing. That's Jewish. That's what I knew. That's what I was taught. And now I'm losing it. I lose that. That's 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 that's, that's everything. That's my soul. Munich from 2005 was the 23rd film from director Steven Spielberg. During the 1972 Olympic Games in Munich, 11 Israeli athletes are taken hostage and murdered by a Palestinian terrorist group known as Black September. In retaliation, the Israeli government recruits a group of Mossad agents, led by Avner, played by Eric Banner, to track down and execute those responsible for the attack. Adam, did this have you questioning the fine line between justice, vengeance and murder? Oh, look, absolutely. Um, I, this has definitely got to be the most violent movie about Olympics that I can think of that's <laughs> ever been made. Um, I mean, look, this this braids three elements, really. I mean, of, of recre- like historical recreation there, a thriller um, and a political statement as well at the same time. I mean, it's a very it's a very talky movie for a thriller. You know, I mean, it has these incredible sequences of suspense and and really violent. I really feel that this is, you know, up there with um, Saving Private Ryan is one of the most violent films that Spielberg has made. I felt that there's a realism to it. Um, but there is lots of walking and talking and chewing on these concepts. Um, you know, I mean, and obviously the movie's populated by these incredible actors who sell this. Um, yeah, I just think it's a really effective film. It's very grim. Uh, I mean, I still remember when I saw it. I, I, some people think that there's this layer of Spielberg schmaltz to it, but I still feel this is one of the more grounded films he's ever made. Nadine? Look, um, I was blown away by Spielberg's message of revenge being a zero-sum game. Um, In the end, we're looking at Avner, who is a fictional character, by the way. Um, Is he a fictional or a composite? He's based on on somebody who was Golda Meir's bodyguard, um, Mm. 
but and it's based on a book called Vengeance. Mm. Um, but he is not actually, he was never a real person. So um, I, I think, you know, we watch him go from true believer to having complex PTSD by mm. the end of it. And um, there are moments where he's forced to interact with, with essentially his enemy in a yeah. humanist way. And those moments where um, Krishna and Roth and Spielberg were criticised for um, by ultra Zionist groups saying, no, no, look, you, you can't humanise the enemy mm. in this way. But I think that the enemy needs to be humanised when you're dealing with such a, a, a complex situation as the Middle East. Um, I think that it's, as Adam said, one of the more violent films that Spielberg has ever done. There is a lot of shooting and, mm. um, you know, a, a lot of blood and death of characters that you just do not expect to go. Yeah. I think, like, all these sequences too as well are very, they're so realistic. There's, there's like, fumbling. There's, like, a hesitation. There's, like, you know, they're not clean cut. Like, things go wrong. You know, like, I mean, mm. you really feel, you're like, you know, when that they get this first target, you know, they get him to kind of say his name three times. They're kind of really just making sure that they want to do this. And it feels very real. It makes my, I'm watching, I was like, oh, you know. I mean, and obviously, like, the iconic um, sequence with the girl on the telephone is probably one of the most suspenseful sequences in modern cinema history. Yeah, it's it's funny. I think this is one of Spielberg's very best films of mm. the new century. Um, as as you mentioned before, Nadine, Tony Kushner and Eric Roth um, use George Jonas's novel um, um, Vengeance to ask searching questions about this fine line that separates justice, vengeance, and murder. And it's kind of to theirs and Spielberg's credit that, the, the, that like you were saying, Adam, the film never shir- shirks from the moral ambiguity of these questions. Like it really kind of, um, all the, the people involved, you know, like you've got the Israelis who are driven by, you know, thoughts of justice and heroism but increasingly feel like hired killers, mm. you know. And then on the other side, the motivations of the terrorists, which um, it's... And, you know, for all the blood spilled, these poor athletes are, you know, aren't going to be any less dead, you know, like this is all. And it's to, and I love that it's sort of Spielberg. It's the guy who made Schindler's List Mm. doing the questioning of Israeli and, you know, the, uh, these Israeli, um, uh, hit squad, I Mm. guess. And, 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 and questioning, you know, the, 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 the moral, um, uh, the moral fortitude of that. Um, and you know, like obviously, this film came out of the. It was released at the tail end of the Bush administration. Um, it's it's sort of you know, of course, sent America down a similar and much less defensible path with their response to nine eleven and the ensuing pointless Gulf War. And it's also it's making a comment on that, but but it's also intriguing given that yeah, that it's questioning the action of Israel being one of the US's great allies and that it's the man behind Schindler's List doing the asking. I find that really bold. Well, it's it's Jewish people asking about Jewish issues mm. and that's fascinating in itself. 
Mm, I mean, it starts to as well kind of so mercilessly like when it, in its recreation, in recreation of this violence and we kind of, you know, and it braces us as an audience and it's like horrendous, you know, I mean, and then and then through these, like as I said before, those walking, talking scenes, we see the complexity of that situation. You know, it's presented in a different way. We see motivations uh, um, later on in the piece. Yeah, I, yeah, I really think it's, it's, it's really intelligent and, and very exquisitely crafted. Um, and you don't, you know, going into this, it, I think it's, it's also one of the more thoughtful films about this issue that have come out of a major studio framework. Yeah. I mean, there's Absolutely. really fascinating elements because the framework, I mean, they're being an assassination, an assassination picture and they're working their way through this list. You know, like there could be just a really commonplace um, thriller mechanic there where we're like, let's work through them. Let's get up to the big final boss. But even the internal dialogues of these characters, you know, people, you know, like the, the character here um, played by Daniel Craig, he's really hot for this. He has no mm. question whatsoever. Steve. You know? Yeah, I mean, he's just completely galvanised by this mission. Um, yeah, but other members are like, we should really be thinking about what we're doing here. So, I mean, I found that really interesting. Is they're not unified in their bloodshed. Mm. Particularly, uh, you know, Kieran Hines' character, Carl, yeah. is mm. terrific. Like, he's yeah. often the moral conscious conscience mm. of the movie, sort of saying, look, I'm doing this, but I don't you all see what this is? You know, yeah. it's like, and it has this beautiful kind of, doubt and clarity and then you got poor little matthew cassavitz like robert yeah. who's the toy maker he's <laughs> yeah. a toy maker who disarms bombs and was yeah. somehow drawn into this because like well you know bombs right mm. and it's like i i don't put them together and this ongoing narrative of him like the bombs are either too weak or too powerful mm. and and <laughs> daniel craig kind of being on his ass about it mm. i just felt for him the whole time and he's the one that gives that beautiful speech that i played just before the review about you know, not feeling decent anymore. Um, yeah, they make a, a terrific foursome, and and then you've got the fun of Matthew Amalric as their as oh, their yes. snooty mm. French contact, and Michel Lonsdale as his uh, as his father, mm. <laughs> who's, who kind of runs the whole kind of operation. Um, the you know of, of sort of getting uh, the operation of getting the contact, you know, getting these sort of the details of where these terrorists are hiding out. Intel. Only because they pay the best, though. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I, I very morally compromised those yeah. that yeah. family. Exactly. <laughs> it's such an excellent showcase of Banner, too, as well, I think. I think that he's, like, you know, this human core of this. Um, I find Banner's American accent to be slightly grating sometimes in some productions, but so I, his accent work, work here I really, really like. I think that, you know, he's really soulful in this and we can see the toll that it is taking on Avner. I completely agree. I I am a huge fan of Banner as an actor. Um, but, yeah, I do find at times his American accents can be a little wonky. Um, and I remember seeing this back in 05, and this was fairly early in his film starring career. Yeah. Like I think he, he'd made Hulk a couple of films. I think he'd made mm. Hulk and Troy and this yep. um, after, you know, Chopper and Black Hawk Down and the Nugget. And it's sort of – I found him – riveting and, and really lived in in a way I'd never seen him before yeah. outside of Chopper. Like, and, and I still think this between this and Chopper is best performance. I think this has certainly got more layers. Um, and you, you, you hit it bang on the head there. Um, Adam soulful. And, you know, I mean, he's headlining a Steven Spielberg film here relatively early on in his career, mm. but he looks the most comfortable here in his character. He doesn't look stiff at all. Like he no. Really, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing kind of of the, yeah, he, the a accent work is brilliant. 
he's um he's open and he's you know gritty when he has to be and 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 feels completely uh plausible in the in this role and and gets to the the many complexities that are kind of running through his brain at any given moment mm. um yeah this is this is a banger of a performance from him mm. oh absolutely and of course um the famous sort of near ending with the sex scene with his wife where he's flashing back through through the assassination and it's 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 terrifying because mm. it, you know all of these things are never going to leave the Afna character you know he can say no to Ephraim um Jeffrey Rush and never go back but they'll never leave him he mm. has been destroyed by what he's gone through yeah i yeah and i really feel that with him i i have to say i feel like the film is masterfully crafted for the most part i only feel like it does suffer from some overlength and some i find that sex scene does tip over into a mania and and the final shot a little bit of signposting those two moments for me overextended slightly uh, they, they were two qualities that are sk- beautifully skillfully absent during the rest of the film like the rest of the film is so and i guess there need to be some sort of crescendo but i i just found that a little bit kind of on the nose. Um, but I have to say um, the rest of it is so um, incredibly well done. Kaminsky's, uh, Janusz Kaminsky's cinematography is is beautiful. Yeah. Mm. I mean, this film, it's so period accurate in its production design, mm. but it's shot in such kind of an athletic way. It just it feels like it's a film that will be ageless. Mm. It, does, it definitely has that quality, doesn't it? it yeah, there's nothing staid about it. To everything. Yeah, totally. Like, I mean, it looks, you know, like that period of time and we associate films that look like that to not move as smoothly as this does. But, I mean, but it's very kinetic. Mm. It's, I feel like it, it might start out as a bit of a righteous rampage of revenge but soon descends into this thoughtful meditative bummer, really. Like you said, it's <laughs> yeah. very grim. And yeah, it is, yeah. as this kind of true life account should be. Mm. Uh, um, yeah, I, I think this is um, this is definitely top top tier Spielberg, um, and 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 has him yeah keeping a lot of that sort of uh, sentimentality that you mentioned earlier well in check mm. um, for um, for the the entire film. I think um, I think he'd gotten a lot of that out of his system with the terminal a year earlier. <laughs> 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 it's one of those films. The, the Terminal's one of those films. That you know, you know those when you love a filmmaker and the critics of that filmmaker always criticize them for the same things, and then comes a film that embodies all of those criticisms. And you're just uh, like, ah, yeah. It's like I it's see. the exception that proves their rules, and I hate it. Um, yeah, the the Terminal with Spielberg to the Wonder with Terrence Malick. You know, the, the directors have them. Uh, <laughs> So Munich is now streaming on Stan and is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple Movies, Google Play, and Amazon Video. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. You're back with Primal Screen on Triple R with Adam Ross, Nadine Whitney, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. So we've had, uh, I think we, I think it's fair to say we've had our bronze uh, winner, and now the gold and the silver is uh, between uh, Munich and our next film, our final film of the evening, 
to step onto the dais. I want more than anything to win a gold medal. And we have someone who could do that. Well, we're going to win a gold medal, John. How, how, how are you feeling? About, I feel very good about it. I'm a little concerned that there are some psychological issues that we need to take care of. Foxcatcher from 2014 is the third film from director Bennett Miller. U.S. Olympic wrestling champions and brothers Mark and Dave Schultz, played by Channing Tatum and Mark Ruffalo, joined Team Foxcatcher, led by eccentric, to say the least, billionaire John DuPont, played by Steve Carell, as they train for the 1988 Olympic Games in Seoul, South Korea. But John's obsessive and self-destructive behaviour threatens to consume them all. Nadine, did you catch the fox, mother? Oh, my goodness. This film is is, is so depressing in every <laughs> aspect. <laughs> um, not only have we got, you know, the, the extreme Oedipal tension going on between Steve Carell and Vanessa Redgrave there as... Um, the Duponts, but um, we have the true story of Dave Schultz's death um, at the hands of Jean Dupont, who is slowly going more and more off the rails, and we don't know how much of that is being fed via the Team Foxcatcher ethos, the fact that that people are... um, allowing him to act this way or whether it's just something that is innate in DuPont's um, psychology or sociopathy. Um, It's depressing from the get-go. From the moment that we're watching um, Mark Schultz wrestle in a deserted gym up against a a very badly gaffer-taped I guess dummy to him being confused for his brother whilst he's trying to do a, a talk at a high school about being an Olympiad, to him breaking um, two-minute noodles and sitting in <laughs> his depressing, depressing home eating so, them. It's a moment of that that reminded me of my 20s at one point. <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it reminded everyone of their 20s at some point. <laughs> Breaking two-minute noodles and just sitting there at the table eating them yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, did you did you even go to university if you didn't live like that? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it, it's, it's fascinating because uh, it does bring the character of Mark to the forefront um, because it's be- partially based on his memoirs. Um, but really, the the story behind it, because I, I I went down the rabbit hole in a mm. big way with this, mm. and I also watched Team Foxcatcher, yeah, which right. is a documentary on Netflix, which I think you should definitely mm. check out if you're interested in the film. I'm very keen um, to. Yeah, look, Mark doesn't even appear in it, so it um, it's really fascinating and how messed up Dupont was. He was seeing people in the walls. He would test all his athletes out by saying, can you see this? Can you see that? Can you hear this? Can you hear that? Oh, wow. Um, Didn't you say, uh, 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 
uh, so you're saying on social media somewhere that he at one point he uh, Dupont had in real life not in Foxcatcher had an aversion to all things black at one point, including yes, fire, firing including, the black athletes from his stuff. He, he fired black athletes from Team Foxcatcher because he was afraid of everything black, including cars. But after he was put in jail, he had his entire Pennsylvania state painted black. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and look, Steve Carell does an incredible job here. Mm. It's not just the prosthetic nose. This is this when they say somebody has completely submerged themselves into a character. Steve Carell has done this as Dupont. You don't know it's Carell. Yeah. It, you know, it, it's not just Nicole Kidman with a nose playing Virginia Woolf. It it is a completely different way of speaking, a completely different way of moving. He is genuinely frightening. Mm. Um, Adam, but Anna, that analytical thing that he does in this, where every conversation he's having, he he gently opens up a little bit and he stares for reaction, mm. and you know, like, and he's really because he's been stitched up, and that that monologue that he gives about how he he had a friend once, and then he found out that that friend was on a payroll, and it was never really his friend, and you know, that's never left him, and he's always because he can offer the world to everyone, but he wants them to like him, but he's such an inherently unlikable character, you know, like it's fascinating to watch him almost squirm socially in front of everyone, you know, and he knows the power that he wields, and he's mercenary with it, yeah. Yeah, it's. You know how there's there's obviously a, a, a genre of comedy that's become very popular over the last twenty years of cringe comedy. Mm. This is some this is cringe drama. Like yeah, there's something, yeah. and ultimately towards the end, like akin to cringe opera. Yeah, from the very first scene to the last, it's there's like, like uh, you were describing earlier, Nadine, like that progression of the way it from the way it opens, mm. like him getting the, like being confused for his brother and taking the $20 check for making the speech. And he's an Olympian and this is all he can kind of get out of his life to the end. And that, you know, that horrible MMA fight and the chance of you, you know, this film is unsettling at a cellular level. Yeah, Totally. I think the tone, the tone of it is so incredible. Like, um, as you were saying, Nadine, it's incredible to watch these as two pieces because the Team Foxcatcher documentary is so dense with inf- information, but this film is so slow in its in its pacing and even its scenes um, that without the real life information, you could almost go, "This is a very dull film." But if you know where it's heading, and especially when I watched it again for maybe the third or fourth time, it's so suspenseful. And the, yeah, so once you tune into its frequency, like yeah, you just cannot take your eyes off it. Yeah, well, and oh, sorry, go. I was just going to say, Bennett Miller is a bit of a master of giving you dull things and making them interesting. Yeah, I mean, Moneyball. What <laughs> do I know about about baseball <laughs> statistics, and why should I care? But I did. Yeah, I I was completely into that film. Capote. Well, you know, everyone's vaguely interested in Capote. Um, but he he did manage to take what seemed you know quite quite bleak and dull to begin with and turn it into a, a really strong and and um powerful punch by the yeah. end and uh the i i it's 
it's a horror film for me in a lot of ways. It's <laughs> yeah. not a film that, that will give me nightmares. Totally. I'm, I mean, Bennett to as well has directed, you know, so many actors to Oscar noms. Um, and I think that everyone here is almost uniformly like career best. As you were saying, like Carell is so good and unnerving. And Channing Tatum here is like, even his body language, like he's like widened out his back, you know, and he's hunched over. He looks almost like a gorilla. Like he's just, you know, um, but he's, you can tell he is so disappointed in his life and where he is, you know, and Mark Ruffalo is traditionally, you know, a very warm actor and he's really, he brings that warmth here too as well as his brother. They're all, yeah, firing, I think. Like, like you both were saying, like there's th- this quality of immersion. I mm. think all three do it. I think, yeah. and and it's, I've got the same note, Adam, about body language. If you're looking for something to help you, if you're watching this film and you're like a little too caught up in the claustrophobia of it all and a feeling like this horrible uh, walls are closing in, if you just want to take a moment to breathe, just watch Carell, Tatum and Ruffalo's body language Mm. in all this. It's fascinating. Like it's really something to behold, um, the way they hold themselves. Ruffalo is almost like a bear. Yeah, totally. And what about that wrestling sequence where they're both warming up and they're testing each other's bodies? Mm. And, you can, and you can tell the power dynamic between the two brothers. Yes. Like it's just, just such an incredible sequence that is like says so much about their relationship. Absolutely. And then um, that horribly uncomfortable scene where the team have just, they've just had a win and they go back and, to have drinks with John and John's like suddenly like trying to put wrestling moves on everybody. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, <yeah>. gosh. <laughs> <laughs> like grabbing their legs yeah, and it's yeah. like like a child it's just like oh my god but again yeah, it's contact yeah. and these guys were you know were olympic athletes right like they were training all the time and john was just doing lines and drinking whiskey all the time you know like i mean he wouldn't you know and then he would like say go on fight me they would have thought they were going to give him a heart attack <laughs> if you do seem to see team foxcatcher you'll see real like you will see DuPont and he is is a banana essentially he's so skinny and I think his legs basically go up to his armpits he's um Carell couldn't quite do that physically you know can't stretch him but uh, he he was I, I guess a 40 pound weakling you know as as they used to say in the Charles Atlas ads um and him pretending that he could actually win wrestling matches without mm. paying off the competition, it's, 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 it's yeah, absurd. That, that scene with the guys on the ground, he's just waiting for <laughs> under him, just waiting for the, guy, the referee to count it off. It's just apparently there's a, there's a video on YouTube of like a, a, a Russian goalie letting Vladimir Putin score a goal. <laughs> same energy. Same energy. Yeah, same, same energy. It's, yeah, it, um, I, I, I absolutely um, agree. It's terrific career high stuff from all three. And there's also with Carell, with DuPont too, there is this sort of slightly sort of homoerotic kind of tension going on as well, the way mm. he regards Schultz and his mother's attitude to him and looking down on wrestling and, and as and, a low sport mm, and, and this sort of whole notion of physical contact and yeah, that, that's, that's never overstated. It's, it's just something that's kind of part of that fabric of who he is and what is, you know, possibly slowly driving him, um, you know, around the band. Um, there's, I think this is my favorite Bennett Miller film. I mean, he's got quite a record. Like I, I wasn't, 
I, I was one of the few people that, that I didn't really go for Capote at all. And I like Moneyball, but this is the one I love. But he's got an astonishing, like all three of his films have had two best actors, like have had a best actor yeah. and a best supporting actor or actress nominee. They've all been nominated for best screenplay. He's been nominated for best director twice. Mm. Out of he's got like this sort of low low output, high impact kind of career. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, I read somewhere just because well, um, researching for this that he doesn't own a house and a car, so that yes. makes me feel way better about myself. Um, so, you know, so Bennett, Bennett Miller's like three for three in this great director. He's still riding around a bike like me. There's hope still. <laughs> he calls himself a tumbleweed. Like he just doesn't. Yeah, yeah, that any... was a quote. <laughs> and you never know what he's working on. Like apparently he's making a documentary regarding advances in technology or something. He just sort of <laughs> comes because at first I thought he was part of the Miller dynasty. I thought he might have been, you know, like with Rebecca Miller, like I thought he might have been uh, uh, one of Arthur Miller's kids. Hmm. But he's not. He, okay. You know, he had sort of just kind of regular work at a artist as parents and and has this sort of weird yeah like a weird mystique that doesn't seem cultivated he just kind of just seems to pop in and out whenever he's ready um which i find fascinating but i love the way he uses this story as a vehicle to to show like how various facets of the american dream have curdled into something horrifying and 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 distended I mean, you know, if the American dream was ever anything but a marketing ploy anyway. Mm. Um, but you were talking about the slowness before, Adam. He holds these scenes exquisitely, yeah. t- slowly turning the screws in every moment with this deliberateness, deliberateness that would be sadistic if this story wasn't true. Yes. And I think too as well, like, you know, I mean, obviously the the final point that it's leading up to is so shocking um, and it's still to, you know, I mean, even when you read the story, you're like, what? Like, did this really happen? Um, mm. And because he's created this kind of, yeah, economy of, of slowness, it just shocks you. Like, you know, because you've almost become complacent to its its pacing. And then you go, wow, oh, oh no. You know, like, it's so somber. Yeah, I mean, you're right, Nadine. Like, it is so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I love depressing films. So, yeah, I think, yeah, this is my favourite of all three. It's definitely my favourite of all the three and Bennett Miller really can't do any wrong in my eyes. Mm. Um, I love Capote because, well, Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest his precious little soul. Mm. Um, And, look, I I know I keep saying this, but if you've watched Foxcatcher or if you haven't, please do. It's it's available and Anthony will tell you where. But... Do go down the rabbit hole with it because it's a fascinating story. Mm. Um, much more goes on than Bennett can show you in the film and it's well worth your time to I think learn about the DuPonts. When Mark Schultz wrote, like, was writing a treatment for this and sold it off, he thought he was going to get his version of Rocky and that's not what this Oh, my God. Is. You know, he really did. Yeah, he thought, you know, like this was going to be his story. But, um, but uh, you know, Bennett's had a look under the hood here and he's like, no, that's not what we're doing. Yeah, uh, that's not where the money is. Schultz supposedly went ballistic on Twitter. It was like, I'm going to sue him. You know, he didn't realise that it had DuPont, like, you know, uh, humping on him and all these other, like, you know, <laughs> innuendos and things. So, I mean, there's a much, much, much better film here with what he's explored. That's fascinating because I, I saw the trailer for Team Foxcatcher and, yeah, and I was quite stunned to see that there's no mark anywhere in the trailer. There is no Not mark. even in archive footage. Yeah. Nope. Like, 
And it's like, did, was he even involved? <laughs> like, what's? But that's you, the that's the fascinating thing that there is no mark anywhere, and you find out a, a lot more about um, Dupont's relationship with other team members, and his his actually very very friendly relationship with Dave. In the film, it's shown as Dave is quite cynical about DuPont, but um, in the documentary, they are very, very friendly. And it's actually Dave's recommendation that keeps Wrestling America um, with DuPont, even though he'd had some quite serious accusations levelled against him because he'd had... um, pointed a gun at one of the athletes at one point and oh look <laughs> yeah. yeah some very cooked things yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. it's one of those things though like it is that kind of thing it's that behavior that sometimes like it's like it's almost like oh this is like hilarious until like you know somebody dies you know until something yeah. catastrophic happens i think too, um, as well that all of us have got a fantasy that if what if someone was just to walk up to us and go look everything you want i'll just pay for okay anything you ever mm-hmm. want to do as a creative as an athlete like this fantasy and this guy straight up did it he just goes come with this invitation rock up and everything you've ever wanted but then this person is dupont <laughs> you're like how <laughs> how how much of this can i tolerate you know like it's nuts it's yeah, exactly. It is fascinating. Um, you know, next thing you've got your hair peroxided and you're doing all this blow, and you have no idea what's happening. You know, it's really. I was watching this character Curdle. I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. <laughs> you're in a ranch in the middle of God knows where. Yeah, Pennsylvania. That's Pennsylvania. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's. Um, and yeah, it's one of those kind of sometimes truth is stranger than fiction kind mm, of stories. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I'm fascinated to watch the documentary and, and and compare and contrast. So Foxcatcher is now streaming on Stan and is available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple Movies, Google Play, and Amazon Video. And Team Fox, Foxcatcher, if you want to check that out afterwards, is streaming on Netflix. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Hello, I'm Peter Strickland, and you're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. So you have been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Nadine Whitney, Adam Ross, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. On tonight's spotlight on classic films about Olympians or adjacent to the Olympic Games, we reviewed Chariots of Fire, available to stream on Disney+, Munich and Foxcatcher, both available to stream on Stan, um, and all three are available to rent or buy on YouTube, Apple Movies, Google Play, and Amazon Video. Adam and Nadine, thank you so much for joining me. Absolutely thank pleasure. you so much for having us. It's been fun. Uh, we, so we all are Fox Foxcatcher gets the gold tonight, yes? Foxcatcher gets the gold. <laughs> yeah. Silver, Munich, and a very distant bronze chariots of fire. Next week, while we have no idea where the cinemas will be open or what we're reviewing, I can spoil one thing. After a well-deserved break, our primal screen co-anchor Flick Ford returns to the show. You'll have to wait till the weekend to find out what we'll be discussing. So log on to Primal Screen's social media outlets on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter this weekend for updates. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast, to Carl Chapman for paneling the show and providing producing assistance. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 